La spinage au la bouchon, si grec de pote bello, si rakish pacaletto, si le tula tilatua. Hello! Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And uh, this bumper for this series is from Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. So um, we'll be talking about film. Um, it's been a while since I've done these recordings because I, I sort of ran out of books. It, it had to do with uh, COVID-19. I normally will go back to Taiwan over the summers, restocking books, bring old books back. I uh, wasn't able to do that, but I was able to get some books shipped. So uh, I got five or six that should last me until hopefully I'll be able to travel again. Um, so anyways, um, so this next series, we'll be looking at the works of, of James Adji. I think that's how it's pronounced. Adji, not a G, Adji. Um, James Adji. So James Adji is a journalist, of course, a very important journalist from the middle of the 20th century, um, known for probably his most famous work is Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, which was a collaboration with Walker Evans, the photographer. And actually, um, Library of America has uh, Let Us Now Praise Common Men with all the Walker Evans photos. I think it's all of them, as it was originally published, which is really awesome. Um, but um, they, Library of America has collected two volumes of his writings. They're both very thin volumes, so um, each around just 700 pages, so you know, there's two of them. So about 14 episodes, we'll do a quick read-through of these works. And what, what are we going to have? Well, what we're going to look at first is his film writing, uh, his film work. Uh, and this is all collected in one book that was published like later on. It's called Edgy on Film, Reviews and Comments. So mostly this is made up of his Nation Magazine uh, columns, which he did I think every three weeks or every month or so. It, was, it didn't seem to be very consistent. But uh, it's interesting, uh, I'll say more about this later on, but it's very modern in the way he talks about films. I, I was reminded of a lot of like YouTube commentators and how they deal with, how they kind of make film reviews these days. Um, but you got that. You got an essay on comedy, which I'll talk about a little bit later in this episode. Um, so that book, there's some, also some Time Magazine articles in there, but it's like his film writings that were collected um, at some point. Maybe I have the date for that. 1940, 1948? 1949? Nope. Sorry. I don't have it with me. But it's mostly his, his film writings from the, from the 1940s. Oh, sorry, here I found it, 1958. That's after he died. He actually died in 1957. Um, that's the bulk of this first volume, um, by the way. Then we have a few uncollected film writings, you know, these anthologies. They always leave some things behind, so it's up to later scholars to, to kind of um, throw them together. Um, okay, then we have, that'll take about five episodes to go through all this film writing. Um, and actually, I've been watching some of these films and tr trying to check them out, which has been a, a learning experience for me because, you know, I haven't seen most of these films he mentions. Um, then we have uh, a play he wrote called The Night of the Hunter, uh, which is an, uh, an adaptation of a novel. So it's kind of a Southern Gothic work. And then we have, that'll be just one episode, and then we have one episode that will cover his other journalism collected here, so... That is what the first volume is. The second volume of Adji's writings uh, doesn't have that much in it either. Uh, the bulk of this one is Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, which is about 400 pages. Then we have The Morning Watch and A Death in the Family, which are his two of his works of fiction. And then we have some of his stories. So that is, that's what we have to look forward to with, with uh, James Adji. Um, so, anyways, let's let's jump into it uh, and, and kind of get to know James Adji um, as we read some of his 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 works. 
I will say this about him. He, he seems to be socialist adjacent. He doesn't seem, I mean, that doesn't seem to be what he was about directly. I mean, let us now praise famous men. It's certainly a very populist work. It's very sympathetic to the working poor of the South. Um, but he's, he's very literary about how he goes about it. So he's not like a populist writer in the sense he's trying to write for the masses. It doesn't seem what he was doing. But on the other hand, he writes fairly popular columns in the nation on film, a very popular medium. So he is a populist, but he doesn't always write like a populist, it seems to me. And he's, you know, he's kind of socialist adjacent in that, like when he talks about films, he was really like supportive in promoting like Russian films during World War II. Um, and he was a big defender of Charlie Chaplin, of course, who was a, who was a socialist. Um, as far as I know, he wasn't like put before, you know, the McCarthy trials or anything. I don't think he had anything direct relationship with socialism that way. But, he, you know, he, he seems to have a, a sympathy there to the working class in a way. Uh, and that really comes through in like his film writing, I think. In his film writing, you really do get the strong sense that he is, you know, he... You know, he, he expects certain quality of films, and he's, he's someone who lambasts films he thinks are not good, and sometimes he's, he's against majority opinion, right? Movies that have, like, 90% on Tomato Meter now, he, he didn't think much of. Um, but at the same time, he really appreciates films that, that do um, speak to the masses. I'll give you some specific examples of this in the next couple episodes, I think. So, anyways, this is kind of a fumbling introduction, but... I guess it's, it's been a while since I've gotten into this. And I haven't read that deeply into these edgy volumes. That's, um, that's kind of slowing me down, too. I don't, ha I don't quite have a feel for them yet. But anyways, let's, let's just go in and see what we find. Um, so this first, the first part of this volume, as I said, is a book called Edgy on Film, which is a, was a fairly long book, which has collected all of his film writing, specifically... Um, uh, his nations, his nation uh, publications, uh, that's the bulk of it. Uh, essay called The Undirectable Director, which is about John Houston. Uh, another essay called Comedy's Greatest Era, which is about Buster Keaton, um, Chaplin, Mar Mar Max Sennett, Harold Lloyd, and who am I missing? Ooh, Harold Langdon, those people, those silent film comedians. Then we have some Time Magazine articles. That's what's in this Adjiet film. Again, published in 1958 uh, at the, after he died. Um, so, yeah, so the first essay we have here is Comedy's Greatest Era. And so this is just a really, really great introduction to silent era film comedy. Uh, and I think he says something that I think we notice or we appreciate. Like if we watch, I think we're kind of in a low point of film comedy now. I think most people would agree. Like, you know, there's, you know, if you don't go to the movies to see comedy quite the same way. I mean, there might be comedic elements in film, but that's not really what drives people to movie theaters anymore, right? That wasn't the case like when I was young. Like in the 90s, there was a lot of comedies. And even in the early 2000s, I thought there was quite a few. Comedies were a draw, right? And, and it kind of comes and goes. And there's kind of, you know, is the talent there to sustain it, right? Maybe it moves. And that's another thing I think Edgy seems to talk about a lot, not just in this essay, but in his other essays, is how format changes and how venues change, right? Maybe, I think, much more popular now than maybe films is like stand-up comedy and like Netflix shows and things like that. Those seem to be doing quite well. Um, or maybe television, right? Like romantic comedies aren't really popular on the big screen anymore, but they seem to be popular on, on the small screen, on streaming services and things. So there's something here about like the the means by which media is portrayed and how comedy has to inter, like relate to that. And I think here the big conversation is this transition from vaudeville to silent film, right? And then on the other tail end of it, 
the transition from silent film to talkies, right? Because Chaplin seems to be the only one who kind of made it. Plenty of people made it for like for the vaudeville stage to silent film, right? Or, or there's a bunch of people who really prospered in silent film as comedians. But how many people made it to the other end outside of that too, to the to the talkies, right? Um, or inverse, could uh, W.C. Fields have been successful in a silent film? I don't think so, right? I think most people would agree that there's something about his his voice acting, about his characterization through his voice that was key to who he was, right? Even though there's some physical comedy in W.C. Fields, that's not what he primarily was. He had this much more drier approach, right? But, but you know, Buster Keaton, um, Landon, Lloyd, these people couldn't really make it into into talkies and Chaplin sort of just barely made it into talkies right he had it's really just uh, the great dictator and what's the other film's name uh monsieur verdot right that's his that's the other those were that those are the two true talkies right modern times had us had a soundtrack but on the film itself but it was still a silent film it, it still the actors didn't speak um even though the technology was there for that. So, I, yeah, I think there's some really interesting things in this essay just about, like, the format and the, the venue, right? And the type of comedy that, that... And the type of comedy writing that thrived in the silent era. So I think it's, it's quite a, a thoughtful essay. It was written in 1949 um, in Life magazine, right? And it, it's kind of a general history. And it, it would, you know, a lot of people who would have read that you know, they would have had nostalgia. We talk nowadays about how, like, you have that nostalgia that comes in, like, 20-year, was it 40-year, 30, whatever it is. 30 years, is it? 30-year um, cycles, right? So maybe in 49, you had kind of nostalgia for the silent era, perhaps, right? And there is a talk, he is talking about how there was an effort being made to kind of revive these um, classic silent films, in theaters and bring them back, right? So there's a little bit of a of a nostalgia for the <clears throat> 1910s or 1920s in in the 1950s, I guess. I'm just saying, if this theory about the 30-year cycle of nostalgia holds, you know that that may have been what's happening. Uh, there is, but I, you know, Adji sort of says that that there is a growing interest in the this era of comedy, in part because people were kind of dissatisfied maybe with comedy. And I think that's another thing he's getting at is like, when is there that critical mass of talent that can make a golden age, right? And what he calls here comedy's greatest era. Um, he's also, of course, then introducing this era to younger readers who wouldn't have had a firsthand relationship with these actors, these comedians in quite the same way. So uh, his kind of lead is this... Uh, like the goal of the comedian, I was reminded of like Stephen King's Dance Macabre, where he says, you know, if I, my goal is to terrify, if I can't terrify, I horrify, if I can't horrify, I do the gross out. That's his uh, quote there. But here it's four types of laugh that the comedian strives for, like the titter, the yowl, like those are easy. You can always get those, but they're not very satisfying. Then you get the belly laugh and the baffle. Those are much more difficult to strive for and where you kind of place them where you put the baffles where you put the really big jokes is something that's that's it's not really a science it's really an art and the great comedians knew exactly where to put this and where to space these um but just the struggle like where's the baffle today i think that's kind of the question he's asking like where's the big laughs that we used to have they seem to be gone now Now, part of this certainly has to do with the format. Quote, when a modern comedian gets hit on the head, for example, he's most apt is to do his looks, or he is most apt to do is to look sleepy. When a silent comedian gets hit on the head, he seldom let, let it go so flatly. He realized a broad license and a ruthless discipline within that license. It was his business to be as funny as possible physically without the help or hindrance of words. End quote. So it's really an era of physical comedy, right? That's what 
the silent era is and that's what's kind of distinctive about this obviously physical comedy is not gone but that's not really the source of the big laughs anymore i think like stand-up comedy i'm sure it can have it does have physical comedy sometimes but mostly it's stories anecdotes uh and the delivery of them right situations situational comedy of course but that's that's true in silent film as well but the physicality of it all is key and when he looks at these great performers these great comedians he focuses on their different physicality and their distinctive physicality i think that's that's interesting and you know a lot of these people i didn't think about much like of course i know chaplin um and i've i've watched his films but i haven't really watched the buster keaton films or the or the the lloyd films max senate stuff i haven't seen that i didn't know how important he was to that um to the whole genre of silent comedy um but so it was was nice to read this essay and meditate a little bit on the on these different stars what i i knew maybe the least about was was harry langdon because he seemed to like do a bit of the he actually called he has films called the tramp so he seems to be on one surface copying the tramp but he goes at it totally differently because he had this like babyish look and he you know like there's something kind of old and beaten down about Chaplin's Tramp. Right? If you think about like 1 a.m. where he's a drunk try, just trying to get home, right? Or in modern times, you know, the series of jobs and he's beaten down through life. There was something a little bit more, uh, I guess, childish about Harry Landon's approach to a similar character. Even wore his clothes differently in a more awkward way. And his movements are very different. I actually looked up on YouTube some of Harry Langdon's work. <clears throat> He, he died very poor, more or less unremembered. Um, in fact, it sounds like Chaplin is the only one to really make it big out of this batch of people. But anyways, the main story is it's really Max Sennett who, who really starts silent film comedy, right? And the major silent film comedians all worked in his studio before venturing off on their own. And so he... Um, but let's, and I think Senate seemed to push things to the, to the more populist, to the more vulgar, if you will. And I think that was key to making it a successful genre because films are a mass appeal, um, format. Quote, nice people who shunned all movies in the early days condemned the Senate comedies as vulgar and naive, but millions of less pretentious people love their sincerity and sweetness, their wild animal innocence and glorious vitality. They could not put those feelings into words, but they flocked into the silence. The reader who goes back deep enough into that world will probably even remember the theater. The barefaced honky-tonk and the waltzes by Juan Tuffle slammed out in a mechanical piano. Uh, he's the first to kind of bring sex appeal to the films with the, the Senate girls. right? He, he said he was inspired to do this when he saw that in the newspaper, like a girl next door photo made the front page and the president was was buried on page three so he's like me we need to have pretty girls in our in our silent films or oh, our films right so anyways then we learned that the greats of the silent era all kind of worked their way through senate studio at one point or another and so these people are harold lloyd um who's most known for uh the freshman uh, film the freshman there's that famous scene in the freshman where he's in the, at like the prom or something or he's at some kind of college dance or school dance and his pants fall off you know they they, they during the dance buster keaton harry langdon and and chaplin and and he kind of says that it's like langdon and chaplin are the ones who really kind of combine the heart with and kind of deeper themes emotional themes with the comedy but that Chaplin does it in a much more kind of humanistic uh, and and universal approach and Langdon's appeal is much more focused not that he's a one-trick pony but he had that one thing and he did it really well Um, here's what Adji writes uh, Langdon was almost as childlike as the character he played he had only a vague idea of his story and even of each scene as he played it each time he went before the camera, Capra would brief him on the general situation. And then, as his finest of intin- 
in intuitive improvisers once tried to explain his work. I'd go into my routine. The whole tragedy of the coming of the dialogue, as far as these comedians was concerned, and one reason for the increasing rigidity of comedy ever since can be epitomized by the mere thought of Harold Langdon confronted with a script. Langdon's magic was his innocence, and Capra took beautiful care not to meddle with it. Um, so then, and then it's Buster Keaton is the is the the, the last of this quartet of of stars, and then he talks about the transition to talkies. How really only Chaplin made it, but then there was like a new wave of comedians. But Adji's not too big on these guys. He thinks they're he thinks there's been a serious decline in comedy since the greats. And he kind of puts W.C. Fields as the exception that proves the rule. But what and this is what really struck me is what what he says was so special about Fields is he couldn't have worked in silent. Right. And so many of the silent actors couldn't work in the talkies. So they really were separate magisterium in a way only someone as great as Chaplin could could sort of do both um, and so there has to be kind of a new synthesis of of comedy there has to be almost like a new senate or something some, some, somehow there's going to have to be a new generation of artists who can work in that that genre I guess so anyways it's a really interesting essay and um I, I learned quite a lot reading it, and, and it's one of those essays where you're always stopping and going to YouTube, you know, to try to find um, the references. So anyways, that's how this book, Edgy on Film, begins. Then we have the Nation um, articles. So... In 1942, James Edgy gets this job of doing movie columns for the Nation. It's pretty much once a month. Um, a little bit, sometimes once every three weeks. I'm not sure. The, the dates are there, but more or less it's a monthly thing. And he wrote these columns from 1942 to 1948. So obviously that's to the, basically to the end of his life, right? So from 40 to the end of his life. And of course the war is going to be crucial to this. So it's a really great source to look at if you just want to know what Americans were watching during the war, right? Now, this is what the editor here says. Margaret Marshall, then literary editor, gave him free reign to cover what he wanted and to write as he pleased. As a result of her understanding and attitude, the reviews became the highly personalized expression of an extremely gifted and sensitive American artist. Uh, I don't disagree. Um, but that's what kind of struck me about this is when I started reading these, I'm thinking, he's like a YouTube movie reviewer. Uh, it even has like a year-end roundup. Like, obviously, internet YouTube movie reviewers often do that. They'll say, like, at the end of the year, what movies did we not review? Which did you see? And what was the best? Top 10. He, he doesn't do it that vul in such a vulgar style. He doesn't have a top 10 list. But he does, at the end of the year, kind of give his overall impression of the year's films. And the articles themselves, sometimes they're in-depth reviews of one work. They're very personal. They're very much as personal reactions. They're not really present, trying to be objective. Um, sometimes he'll mention five or six films. He's like, these are the movies I saw this month. And here's which ones I should see. And sometimes he just talks for like a paragraph or a few lines about a film. Other times he says much more. And it's very, very subjective. And that's why I thought... This is very modern. This is how, like, the most the places most people go for film reviews now isn't, like, the newspaper. They go to YouTube, and they go to those those people. Um, and, yeah, so that's, um, I don't know if he pioneered this style, but it just struck me as, as kind of modern. He's like an amateur. That's it. That's the kind of word I want to say. He's, he's an amateur. And he kind of says as much in his first column. His first column is more of an introduction to the column. That'd be part of the nation for, for seven years. Um, he says, that's my own judgment. And yours is that of an amateur. It's only part a handicap. It's also a definition. It can even be an advantage of a sort. 
insofar as the professional's preoccupation with technique, with the box office, with bad traditions, or simply with work can blur or alter the angle of one's judgment. So you're saying that's kind of an advantage. And I think that's, again, something like the YouTube movie reviewers will say. They'll say, I'm just a, I'm just a guy. I'm just watching this film, and I'm just giving you my opinion on it, right? Um, I'm not a privileged perspective on it. I don't have a degree. I'm not a journalist. I don't have a film studies degree or something. Some of them do, I guess, but he, he presents himself as an amateur. And I think that's this kind of populism in Agi, which I really appreciate. And like, even though his writing can be very, very challenging, like in Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, um, some of the most challenging writing out there. But other times that same, in that same work, it can be very simple and straightforward, but profound you know, in meaning and also very profound in, but other times he goes straight modernist, right? And it's like you're reading James Joyce. Um, so anyways, I think, uh, anyways, that's what he's trying to argue here. He's already arguing this first essay here, which is dated December 26th, 1942. So a year after the U.S. enters World War II. He's trying to say, I'm, I'm just an amateur. I'm just giving my perspective on on this. And then he talked about a few of the movies he saw, but the first column doesn't really um, say too much. It just mentions a few movies, one of which I think is important to mention because uh, we start to get a sense of his attitude towards the war and the film was about the war. Because he's a great defender of the army orientation films. I'll say more about those in a bit. But he's also very sensitive to how like the enemy is portrayed in films so i'll just read what he says about one film quote i also urge that ravaged earth which is made up of japanese atrocities be withdrawn until if ever careful enough minds if any shall be shall have determined whether or not there's any morally responsible means of turning it loose on the public now ravaged earth really is just a film of of a propaganda film of sorts of newsreels and other reporting on japanese war atrocities and why does Adji think it should be withdrawn? Um, <clears throat> and I get the sense he doesn't want to see the enemy painted as, a, as, as an inhuman villain, in a way. Um, or is it just the nature of these atrocities? I, I don't know, because he's going to talk later on about a Disney film, like winning the war from the air or something. I'll, I'll get the name when I get to it. Um, and he says... Like, bombings talked about with no attention to, the, to, to enemy civilians. And like Disney, like, Disney was being accused of kind of whitewashing and, and sanitizing everything even back then. Because um, that was a Disney film. and It was animated. At least the animated parts were done by Disney. So I don't know. I just think it was an interesting response as he thought a film just talking about Japanese atrocities was dangerous in some way. Um... His next column looks at uh, ten, is, is, is a very different type of essay. This one um, primarily is about, it's a negative review of Tennessee Johnson. Tennessee Johnson is a, was a biopic of, of Andrew Johnson, the president. And of course, that's a very sensitive historiographical period, right? Because he was a president during Reconstruction. And of course, he was impeached because of his conflict with Congress over the nature of Reconstruction. He was a Southerner from Tennessee. He had slaves, I believe. You know, picked by Lincoln as a for his second term. You know, because he was sort of someone who could get support from the border states, right? You know, when he when he wasn't sure he was going to win re-election, he chose Andrew Johnson for that reason. And he ended up being a disastrous president who tried to slow down Reconstruction and, and ran contrary to the radical Republicans who wanted a more racially egalitarian society in the South, right? Now, that, not that this stuff is talked about in this movie review. In, in fact, he kind of says it's not really the job of filmmakers to, to deal with what is important to you in the audience. Um, but he does say this. I mean, he's kind of offended by the ahistorical nature of the film, right? I think there's like a deeper criticism that he doesn't quite get out. 
that maybe he could have. But here's what he says. He says, since Americans of the 19th and 20th centuries differ in face, bearing speech and spirit as deeply as the men of different races, scour the country for atavisms and actors who can at least suggest a difference and preserve us from any more of these affable masquerades. He, he also complains about the class uh, dimension of the film writing. In this film instead, where the common people are intended to mean so much, the one faintly convincing rule faces Heflin, a character in the film, when he briefly recalls Bartholomew's in the first production of Tolerable David. Much more nearly typical is a bit by the supposed country boy who has a city face and body and a new straw hat, which is scissored into calendar reminiscence of a Whittier poem. So anyways, he doesn't think much of this film for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, it seems that I looked at the movie poster, it kind of is presented as a, as a comedy, but I've never seen it. Um, he mentions a few other movies here, but... Um, Oh, here's one. one. One that's kind of interesting here is he is very, very interested in the war films, propaganda or films about the war. And he criticizes one. It's a short. Um, he says it's the best recent short, uh, short film about the, for the war, but he also criticizes it. It's called Conquer by the Clock. And basically it's about a munitions girl who takes like a cigarette break, unauthorized cigarette break. Um, and because of that, some shell that she was responsible for making doesn't you know, pass through quality control or whatever. The soldier back on the front tries to shoot his gun, gets that cartridge, and the bullet doesn't fire and he dies. Um, and Edgy writes, quote, it fails to suggest that the same thing might have happened if her visit to the toilet had been sincere. End quote, right? It's, uh, you know, there's... I think that's true. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of reasons why a bad shell will go through a munitions factory. Um, not, can't always blame the, the illegitimate cigarette break. Just a little bit, the vulgar nationalism, I think, is something Adji didn't, didn't like. Um, and he was very sensitive to that. So um, one thing Adji, I think, was fairly attentive to is is how common people are presented in film. And there's kind of a paradox here. Um, one is like you have stunt casting. You had it back then, you have it now. Maybe actually less so now. I mean, the movie star, who do we have as a movie star? Like like when I was growing up, there was like Schwarzenegger and Stallone and, and all that. And, and, you know, even later on, you had George Clooney and things like that, people like that. But Where's the megastar anymore? I, I don't know if they exist. But they certainly did in the 40s. Uh, and of course, you still have stunt casting um, to some degree. Um, even on TV now, right? Top tier TV. But, you know, these pe Hollywood people are, are kind of aloof. I mean, the very fact that they're recognizable makes, them very, makes it almost impossible for them to portray common people. Um, so in one, he's talking about the human comedy, I guess. The human comedy, another film I haven't seen. I'm kind of illiterate with film. I'm sorry to say, um, Mickey Rooney is the lead, lead role here. And he writes this, it would be hard. I grant to find anyone beyond childhood who might be capable of purity and directness of performance, which are hopelessly unavailable to most actors, but I wish it had occurred to everyone to try. The Hollywood traditions of acting, to say nothing of those on stage, are incapable even at best of conv convincing one, except in the frankest kind of myth. I like some of the myths very well and some of the actors in them, but when there is any pretest whatever of portraying real people, as in The Grapes of Wrath and in this film, such actors are painfully out of place. Acting, even if the films I would like to see made, must inevitably develop a tradition, a style, which must, as inevitably in the long run, stultify and destroy itself. All I'm urging here is that the present tradition be recognized for worse than dead, except within its limited and also half-dead bounds, and the new sources be drawn on, new styles, drastically new ones developed. Um, in fact, at the, in, in his kind of 1943 roundup, he says this was like a bad year in film. The best films are the army orientation films, uh, which were documentaries, 
by my friends Capra, um, who was trying basically propaganda films to try to tell. I mean, the, the why we fight films. There's like seven of them, and there's another one, The Negro Soldier, produced in '43 and '44, maybe starting in '42. But they're they're all under the rubric of why we fight. They're the one films he liked the most. They're basically documentaries about Nazi aggression um, and and the history of the World War that was being fought at the time. And I think he's bothered by kind of the fakeness of it and the obvious fakeness of it. I think he's he's after some kind of more realistic um, films. I think I think that's why he was so attracted to the documentary films of this time. So he, he complains in this film, he's still talking about the human comedy. He complains about like how a train ride is portrayed. Quote, a premental child hears a freight train coming, runs up close to it, waves, is answered by a singing Negro. Made with any imagination from the point of view of the child, and the plain fact this could have been a roaring and miraculous half minute, not one thing in it is taken advantage of. To make the shame complete, the Negro himself has a fruity vibretto of a well-trained singer. On another train deep in the night, he referred to as an American knight, crowded troops on their way to war, get tired of talking and singing songs, and by gradual stages take to singing a moody and sankey style hymn. I think it's perfectly conceivable, or perhaps inevitable, that they would, do, that they would. but if they did, it would take some doing. And if we get it, it could be unforgettable. I mean, what he's complaining about is the fact that these characters just start singing in like perfect harmony. Right. Like in a musical, that's fine in a musical because it's part of the genre, right? It's part of the style. But in a in a regular comedy or drama, it wouldn't be realistic that that would happen. Um, so he's, he's a bit bothered by, like, I guess the lack of, of grit, what I'll call grittiness or, or realism to in film. So. Uh, Looking through these, what else do we have? Um, oh yeah, let, let's jump ahead to uh, May 22, 1943. I won't look at every one of these entries. There's a whole bunch of them. Um, but Mission to Moscow. Um, he is, as I said, very sympathetic to, to Soviet films, and he tries to promote them. And he's also sympathetic to films produced in America that portray the Soviets in a good light. And that's why he liked Mission to Moscow. He calls it not entirely without skill. It inaugurates for a general general audience a kind of pamphleteering and, and of the least nominal nonfiction whose responsibilities, whose power for good or evil, enlightenment or deceit are appalling and of which we're likely to get a good deal from now on. This first film is likely to hasten and intensify our cooperation with the Soviet Union. It may even help frustrate those who, if my naive impression is correct, plan to win this particular piece by destroying the Soviet Union. Dominating Europe with the help of Bryn Mawr graduates and domesticated Democrats and reducing China to an Anglo-American-owned Japanese police laundry, end quote. Now, there's some truth to that if you look at like the Cold War history, right? The result was a, a American-dominated Europe, right? At least Western Europe. And the attempt was made to make China basically a satellite of the United States before the Communist Revo Revolution. And he's just glad to see the Soviet Union presented as an ally in the fight against fascism, right? Okay, so he very much liked this, this film. There's another film later on he talks about. It's in this section somewhere. I'll just jump ahead. Um, it's called The City That Stopped Hitler, Heroic Stalingrad. And this is a Soviet film. I looked it up. You can find it on YouTube, but it's, not, it's all in Russian. I guess there must, I don't think Aji read Russian, um, so I guess that, that film was translated and, and performed or, you know, in, in the United States. But it's a Soviet documentary about the Battle of Stalingrad. But anyways, um, he really liked the army orientation films, as I said. He loved the films in the Why We Fight series by Frank Capra. Um, Frank Copper was hired by the U.S. government to make a series of films, documentary films, that would basically be orientation films for U.S. soldiers. And they would, they would watch these films, 
know the state of the war, know the buildup, why the war was fought, and the part of this, and then they were later on distributed to the public, you know, in theaters. And the goal was to convince Americans that who were their tendency was towards isolationism, that this war was worth fighting. And I, and I think it, it worked to a degree, although it's not clear these, the film themselves did that, but certainly the U.S. changed its attitude towards foreign policy um, during and after the war. Um, but I think there ended up being seven films in the Why We Fight series, and then there was another film Frank Capra made called The Negro Soldier, which is like it's a 40 minute little documentary. It's it's a, a, it's a preacher talking to a congregation about American history and blacks role in it. it. It is kind of it skips over a few things that would have emphasized racial conflict like the Civil Wars mentioned, but not slavery. Um, but the goal there is to, to say black people have been fighting for America forever. And this is something that's should be continued and the Nazis really hate black people. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of black people saw through that. I mean, of course you had the double victory movement, which said victory over fascism, but victory over Jim Crow later, right? That this film doesn't, isn't really speak to that directly, but it's still interesting. It's worth watching. And it's just sitting there on YouTube for you. The why we fight films are also basically on YouTube. So you can see them. The first of these that Edgy talks about is prelude to war which kind of goes through the history of fascism. And he really, really likes these, these films. Um, just as, as kind of being a statement against fascism, as being a um, kind of a moral argument for the war. That doesn't, like, redu that doesn't fall into caricature. I think, I think that's one thing he liked about it. Um, maybe because there are documentaries, they have this, this realism. In fact, a lot of Copper used a lot of actually Nazi propaganda and just repurposed it, right? Changed the music, changed the context. You know, films that would have showed, oh, look at the Nazis marching into Russia, victorious. He reused those same, that same newsreel footage to say, oh, look at these evil conquerors going into Russia. Just, you know, just uh, was able to change the context a little bit. He says of Prelude to War, there is a long pouring speechless sequence intelligently sustained by rudimentary drum beats of marching children, youths, and men, which is a virtuoso job of selecting and cutting and the grimmest image of fascism I have seen on the screen. Um, what else do we have here? Oh, the, the Disney one, Victory Through Air Power. Um, that's the name of this film. So this was, I think Disney did the animation for this? No, I just looked it up. It was actually produced by Walt Disney, released by United Artists. <clears throat> it got Academy Award nominations. Best music score of a dramatic or comedy piece. Uh, so it's based on a book by Major Alexander Stravinsky about... Um, he's a Russian-American kind of theorist of of air power so i think this film was kind of animated and and kind of an educational film but he he's upset he's kind of upset about this film in that it it kind of washes away the violence of air power it kind of makes it seem like i mean it's cartoonized quote I noticed uneasily that there was no suffering or dying enemy civilians under all these proud promises of bombs. No civilians at all, in fact. Elsewhere, the death-rendering virtues of the Sarvensky scheme, if he's right, are mentioned. But that does not solve the problem. It was necessary here either, one, to show bomb civilians in such a manner as to enhance the argument, two, admit them entirely, or three, show them honestly, which might have complicated an otherwise happy sales talk. I am glad method one was not used, and of method three, I realize that animated characters so weak, at least as Disney uses them, in the whole human world, would be particularly inadequate to human terror, suffering, and death. Now, just as a side note, their cartoons have been able to do this. Uh, what's that film? Graveyard of Fireflies or whatever. But, anyways, he goes on. 
Even so, I cannot con contentedly accept the antiseptic white lies of Method 2. The sexless sexiness of Disney's creation has always seemed to me queasy, perhaps in an all-American sense. In strict descent from it is this victory in a vacuum, which is so morally simple a matter and so salubrious for the post-war, if only it were true, of machine eat machine. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Uh, and it's still an issue, I think, in, in action films and war films. Uh, of course, they're better, by and large, in showing this. But, but um, you know, it, it's still hard not to show a war film that, that somehow glorifies war in some way. Right? It's hard to be pacifistic in a war film. Like in Saving Private Ryan, right? You're still sort of rooting for the Americans. The Americans are still, you know, they still hold that town or whatever, that bridge against the Germans. They're still, those sacrifices had a meaning beyond just Saving Private Ryan, right? Um, maybe 1917 tries to do this a little bit better. I don't know. Let me know what you think. What other movies did Agi see uh, here? <coughs> For Whom the Bell Tolls. He didn't like For Whom the Bell Tolls. Um, a, a Hemingway adaptation. This movie I want to see, though. Uh, Ernest Lubick's Heaven Can Wait. Sounds pretty funny, and he liked it. Um, it's... He sort of... He likes the director, anyways. Uh, he complains about most movies. Um, a little bit too much, maybe. But the whole plot is the guy goes... To, goes to hell, I guess, and he has, he's lived this really horrible life, and he has to convince the devil he deserves to be in hell or something. And so he has to go through his life and all his sins or whatever. So. Oh, Sahara. So in October 8th, 1943, he wrote about Sahara. So this is another good example of his problem he discusses of, of how you have, like, stunt casting and then you're trying to talk a story about the common people so here's what he says about sahara um, humphrey bogart and several less high salaried but no less talented soldiers stranded at an oasis hold off and then capture a full nazi battalion and quote he says a little bit more about it but that's the main point it's like bogart kind of dominates the scene he dominates the movie he's the the, the, the name actor right but here you're trying to tell a story about a unit of soldiers and you have a an actor of, of significant fame there and it, it changes the nature of that right it'd be better if you have unknowns i guess um but how could hollywood do that right so i'm kind of rambling on and i'm getting to an hour haven't yet covered 100 pages of material though but he does do something that a lot of modern especially youtube film commentators do which is give like a year-end review. He doesn't do a top 10 list, thankfully. But on December 25th, 1943, he wrote a piece called Prize Day. Um, and he kind of talks about the films overall. And he basically doesn't think much of, of the films. Quote, our only really good films have been our straight record films. Of these, the best have been war. And a special intensity required the minimum of intelligence to do fairly well with. Of these, we can still have no idea how much is kept from us or what good or insufficient reason. Of the material we have seen, it's clearly that nearly always, when there has been a ch chance to prepare for the shot through the mind and mind's eyes rather than through the eye purely of courage and of the camera, the mind has been painfully inferior to the possibility offered. The presentation invariably has been worse. The prevailing quality has been that of an American commercial romanticism, as taught, for example, by the Life School. Um, so I, I think he's he wants kind of a seriousness, this, uh, a realism, a, a naturalism, if you will, of film in wartime. And he says you can only really get this in the documentary films, the the news newsreel films. The the other stuff just seem out of out of place, I guess, in the time. Later says, here the only films I can, I can feel any well-grounded excitement over are the army orientation films. Of these, only two out of six completely have reached the civilian public. 
of these, the first prelude to war was treated like a poor relations. And the second, Battle of Russia was gelded of its already sterile political equipment. So even though these he criticizes, but he says they're the best and the most, most relevant. Um, so he actually says, I think it's here. He, he thinks like the future is going to be radio and then television. And he thinks film's going to die. Uh, obviously it didn't. Hollywood's able to, been able to survive. But we might now be really seeing its death. I, I think the chances that Hollywood's going to recover anything from post-COVID, anything like it has been, I think it's, it's not likely. But we'll see. Anyways... Two other films here. I've got a, a a Hitchcock film, Lifeboat, is mentioned. Anyways, as I said I've been going on kind of a little bit too long about this. I'll have to I'll have to think about. Oh, the Negro Soldiers mentioned here um, on March 11, 1944, um, and he kind of praises this film too. He really likes those documentary films, and I, I think it's because of their the nature of their realism. Um, well, anyways, I'll I'll um, I'll take better notes next time and, and be clear about which movies I want to talk about. Um, but yeah, the next episode will cover uh, Adji's writings from March eighteenth, nineteen forty four, till September of nineteen forty five. So pretty much to the end of the war, um, to the end of the war. Yeah, the war would have been over by then. Um, and. Yeah, and we'll see what he says about those. Um, I think it's going to be fun. I think we're going to, in the next four episodes, we're going to follow Adji's uh, views about film. Which films he liked, uh, what he thought the future film would be, um, all, all that. So I'm, I've been having fun because it's given me a chance to kind of learn about films that I didn't know about um, and never probably would have thought about looking at or even checking out on Wikipedia. So I think it's, it's useful to read a book like this because it, it does kind of open your mind to, to uh, works of art, good or not, that are, that are out there and ready to be consumed. Um, but anyways, let me know what you think about any of this stuff. World War II films in particular produced in the United States or, or, or not. Uh, he read some non or he watched some non-American films. But yeah, or James Adji in general. Well, I should try to get you some of his biography next time as well. Um, yeah, I'll try to do that. But anyways, I'm enjoying this. Glad to be back giving you my thoughts on American writers. Um, so yeah, I'll see you next time. Um, thanks for listening. <laughs> J'ai notre seule mine, j'ai notre seule cantine. Je le sais trop vite, je le tasse à Villatoire.